The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Hear the prayer of our Lord Jesus from the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John. We'll be considering especially verses 1 through 5 in these first of our meditations on Jesus' high priestly prayer. But it's important that we hear the whole prayer. This is God's word, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, 
and I will continue to make it known that the love, which you have, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have provided so great a high priest for us who gave himself as the sacrifice needed for the atonement of our sins on the cross. And thank you that you raised him from the dead and that even now he lives to intercede for us. And as we hear his prayer on the eve of his sacrifice, like your ancient disciples overhearing him pray earlier in his ministry, we ask, Lord, teach us to pray. We ask in the name of that great high priest, Jesus. Amen. Well, I have no hard statistical evidence to prove this point, but I have a strong suspicion that one of the first casualties of seminary studies is prayer. Well, maybe not the third week of the semester, but I'm afraid. I'm just a little afraid that in the pressure of assignments and deadlines, sometimes prayer gets crowded out. And that's both sad and ironic, especially at a school like Westminster Seminary, California, where the whole curriculum is orchestrated and oriented around the theme of God's sovereign grace. You would think that that focus would cultivate in every one of us a deepening sense of dependence on God's spirit to enable us to understand the word and to believe and obey it. It's not always so. Now, maybe your studies at Westminster are doing just what they're supposed to do, and you're praying more, more consistently, more intensively, more expectantly, more desperately than you did before. Maybe not. In any case, I think you and I will do well to spend some of our mornings, our Tuesday mornings together in this devotions, thinking about this prayer, eavesdropping, as it were, on Jesus' prayer to his Father, spoken out loud so that his friends could listen and so they could record it under the inspiration of the Spirit for our encouragement, even we many generations later. Hearing Jesus pray, I think, will teach us to pray will make us long to learn how to pray. After all, Luke 11, Luke records for us that it was as Jesus was at prayer, it seems as they listened to him praying that uh, the disciples' appetites were whetted for that intimacy and access to God the Father that they could hear in Jesus' own prayer to the Father. And so they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them a way of praying, a way of praying that we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, pretty hard after so many centuries to change tradition but you know that's not really the prayer that the Lord would pray he doesn't have to say forgive us our debts that's the disciples prayer what we just heard in John 17 this is the real Lord's prayer this is the prayer that belongs uniquely to Jesus this is what one commentator calls a heavenly family conversation that the disciples and through them we are privileged to kind of eavesdrop on and listen in on. Um, Here we can hear Jesus asking the Father for his own glory, that he might glorify the Father further, to protect the apostles and to unify us who will come to faith through the apostles' word even many generations later. 
But if we hear what Jesus longs for from us in this unique prayer that's his and not ours, and if we hear what he's asking for, surely that should guide what we long for and what we ask the Father for. Since we know that Jesus' prayer will be answered, surely we want our hearts aligned with his longings for us. And so it does teach us to pray, even though it's his unique prayer. And of course it also encourages us because it maybe gives us a glimpse as to what he's asking for us even right now. How he's praying for us. Scripture tells us in various places that one of Jesus' main missions now as our exalted redeemer is that he prays for us. 1 John 2 verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, so that when we sin we still have confidence that we can go to him and find forgiveness because Jesus is pleading the case to the Father on the basis of his shed blood and perfect obedience. Romans 8.34, Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And of course Hebrews, over and over again, but particularly Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for us. So it's not surprising that as early as the 4th century, Cyril of Alexandria, in commenting on this prayer, began to speak of Jesus as a high priest who, by his own prayers, was appeasing the the anger of the Father in his sacrifice for himself. Maybe it's a little more surprising that it took the time till the 16th century, as far as we can tell, when a Lutheran theologian, David Catraeus, first actually described this as Jesus' high priestly prayer. But Catraeus and obviously far uh, earlier, Cyril had it right. Jesus, this gives us a clue as to what Jesus is doing for us as he prays for us. And that's encouragement. When we have prayed poorly or little or not much at all, we can cling in hope to the assurance that Jesus is praying for us without fail. And these words give us a clue at least as to what he's asking for us. So we stand here, I think you sense it just in hearing it, on holy ground. And yet Jesus wants us to be here. He wants us to listen through the ears of his disciples. Notice how John begins. When Jesus had spoken these words, which words? Well, all the upper room discourse that has preceded John 14, 15, 16. In that extensive preparation for his departure, Jesus returned uncomfortably, repeatedly to the theme of his coming suffering and death and departure. The sorrow that his disciples would experience, even persecution that awaited them. Now he cushioned the blow by promising them repeatedly that they would have another advocate, another defender, another helper, the spirit of truth who would even open up things to their understanding that Jesus couldn't speak to them during his earthly ministry. And yet he still had to comfort them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. Or even in the verses just before our text, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. John wants us to remember that as we hear the prayer. It's in times of trouble. It's in times when we may feel alone. It's in times when our hearts are downcast 
that a little reminder, a little alarm bell ought to ring in our minds. If I'm feeling this desperate, remember Jesus is praying a prayer like this for me at the right hand of God. New Testament scholars debate over the structure of Jesus' prayer like they debate on pretty much everything. That's what New Testament scholars do, you know. Um, Many, at least, a good map, I think, is to suggest that in the first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself, for his own glory, then verses 6 through 19 for his apostles, and finally for those who come to faith through the apostles in verses 20 through 26. That's That's a helpful division. Although it's a little simplistic about these first five verses, as we'll see in a moment. Because it's not just Jesus praying for himself. He's praying for himself for the sake of the Father's glory. And in fact, because it's for the sake of the Father's glory, in a sense it's already implied that he's praying for us as well. Three things, very briefly, to call your attention to. The presupposition of Jesus' prayer for glory, the partnership of it, and the purpose of it. The presupposition is the eternal deity of the one who is praying. And I call it a presupposition because here in the presence of his father, Jesus doesn't have anything to prove. Elsewhere in John's gospel, certainly, there are those who object to his claim to be the eternal divine son. Unbelieving Jews and their leaders are shocked when he says, before Abraham was, I am, using that divine covenantal name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Disciples are shocked and overwhelmed with fear throughout the Gospels as they see the mighty divine power of Jesus. But here Jesus can simply refer very naturally to the Father about something that they both know very well, the glory that he shared with the Father before the world came into being. And despite the claim of ancient Arius and modern watchtower missionaries, this is not merely the glory of the great preeminent best first creature. Oh no. No creature would dare to make this request. No creature that loves God would ask God to share his glory. After all, Jesus says that the Father is the one true God, and he's really echoing the thought of God's self-disclosure in the prophecy of Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. No creature that loves God, no mere creature, would dare to say to God, give me the glory that we shared. This is no mere creature. This is the eternal Son, the divine Son, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he and he alone could make this request and expect it to be granted. So it's no wonder that the beloved disciple John, having heard words like these and having seen signs confirming such a claim throughout Jesus' ministry, having glimpsed his glory, begins the gospel as we know he does. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Now I could launch off into a whole lecture on Christology here, but we don't have time. But just pause and remember, this is the one who's praying here. The one who can go to the father with such confidence 
because he is the eternal son of the Father. Notice the partnership of Jesus' prayer for glory. By partnership, I'm referring to the mutual delight of the Father and the Son in enhancing each other's glory, just as Jesus indicates in these opening sentences here. Notice the logical flow from verse 4 to verse 5. He says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus is claiming his reward for his mission accomplished. He's kept his commitment in the covenant of redemption. And in so doing, he has displayed the Father's glory and attracted worshipers to admire the Father's beauty. So in complete trust, he claims the prize promised to him. I've glorified you on earth. Father, now glorify me in heavenly splendor. But notice also the flow of verse 1. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Jesus asked the father for glorification that's rightfully his, not only because he's already glorified the father in his mission of salvation, but because he intends to use his glory to glorify the father even further in order that I may glorify you. See, the exchange of glory, majesty, splendor among the persons, the divine persons of the Trinity is not a zero-sum game. Two brothers dividing the last cupcake is a zero-sum game. That's why the wise mom will always let one brother make the cut and the other brother choose the one that presumably looks bigger. Because there's only so much cupcake to go around. And my brother's gain is my loss, so I'm going to try to make it as 50-50 as I can. That's always the way it is among us creatures. There's always that kind of competition. Your gain is my loss, but not among the persons of the Trinity. The Father glorifies the Son because the Son has glorified the Father, and so that the Son may glorify the Father, and the divine persons of the Trinity increase in glory as they glorify one another. Well, that's them. That's this one true God, so different from us. But notice, did you hear in the prayer that Jesus prays that the Father would make us one as they are one? On a creaturely level, obviously, not imparting divine nature to us, but that as the Father works in the presence of the Holy Spirit, as he transforms our hearts, that at a creaturely level we begin begin to reflect a little bit of that delight in the persons of the Trinity sharing glory with one another. And that brings us to the last point, purpose. The purpose of Jesus' prayer for glory. I said that characterizing the first paragraph as merely about Jesus asking for his own glory or even that he might glorify the Father is a little simplistic because he also brings us into it particularly in verse 2 when he talks about how he intends to glorify the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
The Father has given Jesus all authority. Now Jesus is on his way to the cross and then to the resurrection and then to the ascension. And it's in Matthew 28 that we hear him announce again as a result of the accomplishment of his mission to the very end, then he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But that's, this is the authority we're talking about here. It's the echo of Daniel 7 and the vision of the Son of Man. Jesus says, you've given me authority over the whole human race so that those whom you've given to me, I may give eternal life. I have authority over every human being and those whom the Father has given to be my special possession, I'm giving them eternal life. And how is he doing it? Well, he's doing it because the hour is here. The hour that he's been talking about that John has referred to over and over again. People could not do away with him earlier in his ministry because his hour had not yet come. But now his hour has come. And that hour is the hour in which he's lifted up. Lifted up on the cross to draw all believers from every nation to himself. Lifted up through the cross, through the resurrection, to the right hand of the Father. See, Jesus says, he's speaking as an accomplished fact what he's about to accomplish in the next several days when he says, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I've finished it. Greek scholars, teleao here. Next time we hear that word will be in John 19 when John comments that Jesus, knowing that all was finished, in order that scripture might be accomplished, said, I thirst. And then with the cry, it is finished, he lays down his life for us. Jesus gives eternal life through his death. And his intention is to glorify the Father by bringing us to glory. See, that's, you know, if we weren't paying close attention, we might read the end of verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We might just think, Jesus is longing for the good old days. Oh, I'm looking forward to when it's like it was before, before the creation, before the fall, before the ugly, messy history of human sin and misery and rebellion, before it was required of me to take to myself human nature and suffer and bear the, the wrath of God for the sins of my people. Oh, just bring me back to square one, to the beginning. But that's not what Jesus is praying for. Not merely that. Not merely that the radiant display of his divine splendor, which has to be veiled to protect us during his earthly ministry, now is again visible to all the created order. But you see, now we have creatures redeemed creatures that as a result of this whole history are those who can witness the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what's new. Jesus now again displays the glory that was always his. Even in his earthly ministry, he was always the Son, radiant with the glory of the Father. Not all saw it. Not all even glimpsed it, but he was always full of glory because God can never be diminished or grown in his glory. And yet what's new 
is that as Jesus looks forward, as a result of the accomplishment of his mission, there will be a redeemed creaturely audience to be dazzled by his glorious grace and overwhelmed with awe and admiration for the Father who gave his Son for us. As we heard later in the prayer, Jesus says, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So from the start of this prayer, Jesus is praying for his own glory, for the sake of the Father's glory, and that entails his giving eternal life, the knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent to you and to me. Grounded in Jesus going to the hour of his suffering, we are brought with him to glory. Now, we're not there yet. But certainly if that's Jesus' purpose and aim, and if that's what he's praying for, and as we look and long for that day, the glimpses that we have now as we study the word should whet our appetite for that glory and our longing that we would come to know in a deeper way the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, that we might bring him glory for all that he's done for us. My prayer is that even this day, your present glimpses of this God as we study his word and meet his son in the word will move us to wonder at God's power and purity and mercy displayed in the son. Let's pray. Father, Father, Jesus is the one who has the right from all eternity to call you Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father. And yet, by his mercy, by your grace, he has taught us to call you Father. And we thank you that this amazing, glorious, eternally divine Son who shared divine glory with you from all eternity before there was any creature at all prays for us and prays that we might be with him to behold his glory and as we behold your glory in him to give you praise and glory. Father, give us glimpses, foretastes of that in our studies in this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.